A child told her father one day, Daddy, do you know what I really want? And dad thought to himself, well, here we go again. Another request for a future toy. So dad, somewhat reluctantly, said, what is it that you really want? And the child said, to be with God. And the dad said, well, tell me more about that. And the child responded, well, that's what we talked about in Sunday school. That we should want to be with God. And I really want to be with God. Well, this is not a made-up illustration. It happened in our Sunday school class. As one of our Sunday school teachers taught our children one Sunday morning that they should desire to be with God. And I praise God that what our Sunday school teachers are teaching our children is planting, is truth planting in the hearts of our children that they have desires to be with God. I pray that God's Word would create similar yearnings in each of our hearts, especially through the preaching of His Word this morning. As we look and have a peek into eternity through what God revealed to us in His Word about what will happen in eternity. Would you open God's Word to Revelation chapter 21? We'll be reading from verse 1 to Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs that are in front of you. We'd love to have you, to, to have you take the Bibles with you, uh, to own them and to read them. And uh, as you are opening those Bibles, uh, you may find our passage in the Pew Bibles on page number 1041, uh, moving into 1042. God's Word this morning from Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, says the following. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high, to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall, with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. 
And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four squares, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are all equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Chrysoprase, the eleventh Jacinth, the twelfth Amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching of his word? Father, we thank you that you revealed to us that you have planned for your people to experience what you have decreed from, from before the world was created. Father, we thank you for the revelation of what you prepare for your people for all eternity. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would move our hearts to yearn and to thirst for you. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. What will eternity be like? Why should you and I yearn for it, thirst for it? Some people envision eternity uh, to be uh, a picture of angels on clouds with harps. And uh, to many, such a view of eternity uh, does not seem very attractive at all. Uh, understandable. But is that what the Bible speaks of or paints eternity to be like? In this passage, uh, we see that eternity has nothing to do with that kind of um, picture of just 
clouds with angels that are fluffy and harps in their hands. Um, this passage gives us a picture, a more realistic picture of what eternity will be like. And we have to realize that even though this is a more realistic picture of eternity, it is also symbolic. It's full of symbolism. It's full of, of pictures. And I hope that God's Spirit, by what will be declared today, will cause our hearts to increase in yearning for the eternity that God is preparing for His people. If you like taking notes, here's the three points that we will look at about the eternity that God reveals to us um, in this passage. Uh, the first point, God will make a new creation for His city. God will make a new creation for His city. Second, the new city will have the glory of God. The new city will have the glory of God. And third point, and the most important part that we, we should deal with is, who will inhabit God's new city? Who will inhabit God's new city? These three points, I hope, will guide our hearts and our study this morning as we work through this passage. God will make a new creation for His city. In John's vision, he gets to see a new vision of a new, a totally new scene uh, from what has happened before. Chapter 20 ended with a picture of the great white throne. And before the throne, all humanity has been gathered to be judged. And anyone who has not been found in the, in the, the book of life was thrown into the fiery lake, the, the lake of, of fire and sulfur. And after that picture of the great white throne of the judgment of all humanity, John sees a, a vision of, of a totally new scene, unlike anything before. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And this vision of new creation does not coexist with the old creation. Look at what verse 1 continues to say. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. In other words, in this new vision, John sees uh, that the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. They are gone. And God is creating a new creation. Now, in, in describing the passing of the old heaven and the old earth, John also adds, that in the new creation, the sea was no more. Now, the reference to the sea being no more, being absent in the new creation, is an important detail. Earlier in Revelation, the sea was the place from which the beast came out of. Revelation 13. In the Old Testament, whenever we see the dragon mentioned, it was often associated with the sea. In other words, in the new creation, there will be no more opportunity or, or lure of sinning or of evil or rebellion. There will be such a transformation of creation that no trace of evil, of chaos, or rebellion will be found in that new heaven and new earth. The focus of the new creation is shifting immediately to the new city that John saw. He not only saw a new heaven and a new earth. In verse 2 he says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the rest of the chapter, the new creation, is really all about the life of this new city. All creation in the, in the new heaven <coughs> and the new earth will be living in relationship to this new city that God is preparing. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, and the coming down of the new Jerusalem into the new creation receives a few explanations. And then after the explanations, we're going to get a number of descriptions. The rest, the rest of this chapter is about the life of the new creation that is really manifested through life in this new city. And the explanations are the following. 
we get that in verse, verse 3 and 4. We get a first explanation, and then we get another explanation in verse 5. The New Jerusalem, the first explanation about the New Jerusalem is that the coming down of the New Jerusalem means or signifies the dwelling place of God is coming down to be with man. Verse 3 and 4, we read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is why the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. It is because the new Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God. Look at the rest of verse 3. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, the new Jerusalem is not built by people in the new creation. No, it's a city built up above. It's a city that is coming down out of heaven from God. And this is significant because it means that we are invited to experience life in a city that is not built by humanity. It's not built by people, not even in the new creation. It is a city that is built by God. And this is not the only time that we read in Scripture about the city that God is planning to build. Listen to how the book of Hebrews describes Abraham's faith. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. By faith, he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, Abraham's faith, even in the Old Testament, included a hope and a yearning for the city whose builder is God. Listen to Isaiah 65, 17 and 18. For behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. In this prophecy of Isaiah, God says that he's creating a new heaven, a new earth, and a new city. The new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, we get to see the fulfillment of these prophetic expectations. A city, a promised city, built by God. It's a city that comes from above. It is the dwelling place of God that is coming down to be with man in the new creation. Well, friends, that means that the coming of the new Jerusalem to, to the new creation means that God will finally dwell with his people. Look again, verse 3. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The words of this verse are significant. They have been used in key moments throughout the Old Testament. It was used in the book of Exodus when God promised to his people that he will come in their midst, and that he wants to dwell with them. And as a symbol, as a visible symbol, that God will dwell with his people in the midst of his people, God commanded them to build a tabernacle. Remember? It was a symbol of God's presence to be in the midst of God's people. But God's people, even before they got to build that tabernacle, began rebelling against the Lord. And after they built the tabernacle, they kept rebelling against the Lord. And rebelled and rebelled and rebelled until God brought them out of the land and destroyed the temple, the very edifice that was supposed to, to manifest the presence of God. But in the midst of their exile, God promised through the, through the prophet Ezekiel that God will, will do a new covenant with them, that God will cleanse them of their idols, that God would give them a new heart, that God will put in them his spirit, that God will cleanse them and we saw that all in Ezekiel 36, the passage that our brother Weston read earlier this morning. 
And then in Ezekiel 37, here's what God promised as part of the new covenant. Ezekiel 37, 27, my dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. This promise is a goal of the new covenant that God made with his people. This is what God had intended from the very beginning of the first covenant. And now, at the end of Revelation, we finally see that what God had promised from the beginning, what God had reassured his people throughout the development of the Old Testament, finally comes to fruition and will be fully manifested in the new creation when God will bring the new city, the new Jerusalem from above to dwell in the midst of his people. When God will come to dwell with his people, notice what he will do. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This verse is filled with promises that were mentioned in Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 25. I encourage you to read that, those passages when you go home. Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 25. In other words, all form of brokenness that we experience on this earth will be gone and absent from the new creation. Each of these promises are fulfillments of what God promised to his people, even in the Old Testament. Imagine a life with no manifestation of brokenness, no cause for pain, no chance of mourning, no separation of death. This is what God will bring to his people when he will bring his dwelling place to be with his people in the new creation. No form of brokenness will be ever present in that new Jerusalem because these forms of brokenness belong to the current creation and the current creation will all pass away and will be replaced by a new creation. The second explanation that we get, not only that God will come down to dwell with his people and will bring these benefits to his people, the second explanation we get but why, what's significant about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven in the new creation is in verse 5. Look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now this declaration comes directly from the mouth of God and of the Lamb. They are the only ones who are sitting on the throne. He's declaring that the new creation, he's declaring that the new creation is not a fixer-upper. God is not merely fixing the old creation by making some improvements. He is making everything new. He's making everything, all things new. Friends, He alone has the power. He alone has the power to put the old creation away, to make it pass away, to bring the bulldozers into this creation. Knock it all out and build from scratch. Build something new altogether. And this is what he will do. This is what he declares. That God confirms the truthfulness and the reliability of what he's de declaring. He says in verse 5, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The reason why God is able to, if you will, to run the bulldozer through this creation, to knock it all out, to make it pass away, to begin fresh, a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, is because he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. And what that means is that before anything existed, he existed before that. And to say that he is the end means if you could look at the very last thing of this created order, he's beyond that. He's the end of the end. He's the beginning of the beginning. There, he has the right to start all over. He has the right to call it off. And he will call it off and he will start all over. Oh, friends, 
Consider the grand nature of who God is by this very statement. When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the beginning and the end. I wonder if you are looking at God as a means to another end in your life. Or rather, if you treat God to be the true source of everything or the end of all things. How do we treat God as a means of another end? Let me give you an example. Young people may say, well, I want to start going to church because um, I want to get married and I, I, think, I think I can find a good spouse in, in church. So I'm going to start going to church uh, because I want to find a good spouse. Um, and that experience, and I'm not saying any of you would ever think that way, it's just a hypothetical possibility. You really are looking at the benefit that you get out of God or out of just going to church. As opposed to thinking, no, I, I don't want to treat God as an end to another, as a means to another end I have. God is the end of all things. I want to treat God as, as the highest end in my life. Whether God gives me a godly spouse or not, certainly I, I pray for that, but I'm going to church or I'm, I, I pursue God because I, I want God in my life. Not just another end beyond God. God is the beginning and the end. There's nothing before him. There's nothing after him. And I wonder if that's true in your life. I wonder if you treat God that way. Oh, friends, God is making a new creation to be the setting where he can bring his dwelling place to be with his people. Sometimes you hear the phrase, an eternity uh, will be with God in heaven. Actually, this passage tells us something that's a little different. In eternity, God will bring heaven into the new creation so that God will be with his people forever and ever. God is making a new creation so that he can bring down his city, his dwelling place, so that he can be among his people and to be their God. The goal of the new creation, dear friends, is not so that we can live the, the dream life afterwards. It's to be the setting where God's dwelling place comes to be with his people. And the rest of this chapter describes for us what the new Jerusalem will be like. That's point number two in the sermon. The new city will have the glory of God. The new city will have the glory of God. From verse 9 all the way to chapter 22, verse 5, <coughs> John gets a more detailed description of the New Jerusalem. Verse 9, we're surprised that the city is actually described as a, as a bride, the wife of the Lamb. How can a city be described as a bride? Well, this is not the first time in the book of Revelation uh, where John describes a city uh, with a woman. Earlier in chapter 17, John did something similar. John portrayed the life of the earthly kingdoms of this earth as associated with another city. In chapter 17, it was the great city, or the city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. That great city had a name, the great Babylon. And in chapter 17, that great city was portrayed also as a woman, but as a prostitute. In chapter 21, John sees another city and portrayed as another woman, but this time, the vision of the woman is, a, is that of a bride. If Babylon is described in chapter 17 as the mother of the earth's abominations, the bride is described in chapter 21 as the bride of the Lamb and as having the glory of God. And the rest of this chapter describes the radiance of the glory of God. Look at verse 11. Having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. In other words... It had the radiance that cannot be compared adequately with anything else. And from verse 12 to 21, we see a detailed description of, this, of the radiance of this new Jerusalem. What is the new Jerusalem made of? Well, it has, verse 12 to 14, we read that it has a wall. 
the wall of the city, the great wall of the city with 12 gates. Each of the 12 gates had 12 names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. The wall of the city also had 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the point of these descriptions about the wall is to say that the wall of the city comprises the entirety of the people of God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Both Jews and Gentiles who place their hope and trust in God's redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ, are all included in this great city. In verses 15 through 17, we read about the size of the city and of its walls. Some interpreters try to find the equivalent of these measurements. For instance, we read that the city has 12,000 stadia in length, in width, and in its height. 12,000 stadia would be the amount of, or the equivalent of, about 1,400 miles. That's a vast city. 1,400 miles. And not just in width, but also in length, and also in height. Well, the number 12,000 should not really be interpreted as an equivalent of what it would be today. In Revelation, numbers are used symbolically. Twelve is always used for the people of God. A thousand is a number that communicates a vast amount, a vast number. So 12 times a thousand means it's a very vast number. So the measurements of the city is a symbolic number that matches with a vast number of the people of God. It's a city adequate for the entire people of God. That's what the 12,000 stadia uh, means or signifies. But more significantly than the actual measurement is to realize that this city is a perfect cube. Same height, same, same length, same width, and same height. What a strange city. Why is this description of the New Jerusalem given in this perfect cube measurements? Well, in the Old Testament, there's only one other structure built up as a perfect cube. It was not the temple. It was the Holy of the Holies inside the temple. The Holy of the Holies was a place that was designed to symbolize and house God's most intense holy presence in the temple. When people came to the temple, they came to to worship God. They knew God was there in the Old Testament. And God was in the entire temple. And yet there was one room in the temple called the Holy of Holies, where no one was allowed to enter because of the intensity of the holiness of God. No one was allowed to see the the presence of God except the high priest once a year when he would bring in the sacrifice of the atonement. And he was supposed to enter with with a sacrifice full of, of incense so he would not see the presence of God even when he entered that temple, the Holy of Holies. And And when he entered, he had a rope tied to his leg so that in case God would strike him down, they could pull him out and and, and others would not have to go in to pull him out and be struck dead because of the holiness of God. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, the curtain that was not allowed to to be pried apart, except on the Day of the Atonement, that curtain gets broken in half. A symbolic act that God is opening the access into His most holy of places through the blood of Christ. And here we get to see the new Jerusalem, the city. It's a cube form, a cube shape, to represent that the entire city is like the eternal holy of holies. The presence of God the most holy place even of the temple is represents this entire new city. Oh friends, the Holy of Holies was the dwelling place of God in His greatest manifestation of His holiness. 
and for the new Jerusalem to be described in this way, it's a way of saying that's going to be the place of God's most intense manifestation of His holiness. Verse 18 and 21, we read of the materials that make up the foundation of the wall of the city. They're all precious stones full of radiance. And we could talk more about their significance based on how the, the stones that were, they were placed on the, on the priest's chest in the Old Testament. We could talk about that. Time for another study for that. But notice what's missing from the New Jerusalem. There's no temple in verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Since God's dwelling will be in that city, the city needs no more temple. Then there's no more sun or moon. Verse 23, the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In other words, the source of light for the new Jerusalem will no longer come from that which God created, like the sun or the moon. God himself will be the source of light in that eternity, in that great city. The, the light of the city will be so strong that it will be affecting the nations and illumine them as well. Look at verse 24 and 25. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. This is a pictorial language in which this great city will be like the city for all the nations. All the glory of the nations, all their honor will be brought into this city. In other words, there will be no competing glory or honor in that new creation. Friends, have you considered that one of the things that we as Christians practice in our lives on this earth is to bring any glory or honor that we might desire to seek for ourselves? We are called to bring that and surrender it to God. Because we do not want a glory or honor that competes with God's glory. And we encourage one another to live our lives in, our, in this life to forsake self-centeredness. To forsake building our self-centered glory and honor and to bring it all to God. And to live our lives in a way that manifests not our self-importance, but God's importance and glory. That's what the nations will be doing in that eternal state. Notice three features of what's inside the New Jerusalem. We saw what's missing from the New Jerusalem. No temple, no sun or moon. What's included in it? Verses 1 through 5 in chapter 22. The river of the water of life. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. This river of the water of life has its source in the throne of God. Did you notice that? It's flowing from the throne of God. And then there's something else, a second key feature. The tree of life. This is a tree from which Adam and Eve was, were, were barred out of, not allowed to eat of after rebelling against God in the Garden of Eden. They were kicked out of Eden so they could not eat of the tree of life. And now this tree of life is in the city. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In other words, what was closed off to Adam and Eve because of their rebellion will now be open for all the nations to benefit out of that new city. And finally, another feature a third feature that we see, not only the tree, I mean, not only the river, the water of life, and the tree of life, but the throne of God. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. It's not an accident that the final big feature that John highlights about the new Jerusalem is that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. John began the description of the new Jerusalem from the outside. First looking at the walls, then looking at what the new Jerusalem is made of, the materials of it, then what is in it. 
and closes, the camera closes the zoom, finally on the throne of God. Remember when John was taken up into heaven in chapter 4 of Revelation, he was taken up to see the vision of the throne room of God in heaven. Remember how he was surrounded by the 24 elders and by the four living creatures? But here we see God's servants now surrounding the throne of God in this new city. And listen what the servants of God will do. They will worship God. They will see his face. Verse verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. In other words, they will have no unhindered access to God. God's name will be on their foreheads. In, in, in the Old Testament, the, the priest had the name of God written on his head. But here, all of God's servants will have God's name written on their foreheads. In the book of Revelation, we have seen that the beast tried to lure and pressure the people of the earth to have the name of the beast written on their foreheads and on their, on their hands. It was a symbolic way of saying that they belong to the beast and serve the beast's agenda. But in the New Jerusalem... God's people have the name of God written on them. They belong to God. They will serve God exclusively. God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, this is a description of the glory of God in the new Jerusalem. But one question remains. And the third point of the sermon is is this question. Who will inhabit this glorious city? Who will inhabit God's new city? Three times in our text we have seen comments of who will not inherit this new city. In in chapter 22, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. In other other words, nothing that will have the marks of corruption, of the curse of sin. None of that will be found in the new city. In chapter 21, verse 27, we read that nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable. Or false. Just think about that. Anything that you've done detestable or false. None of that will have space. Will have access. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, the people of the New Jerusalem are those written in the Lamb's book of life. Last week, as we have heard about the names written in the book of life. And that those who are not written in the, in the Lamb's book of life will spend eternity in the lake of fire. I was so glad to hear this week that one of our children in our church went home and asked her parents if her name was written in the book of life. I wish everyone of us would inquire and consider that question just as a young child in our church last week has considered that. This book tells us that if we don't have our names written, In the Lamb's book of life, we will not have access to the new Jerusalem. And the the names written in the Lamb's book of life are those who turn away from their rebellion, from their ignorance of God, and trust in Jesus Christ, in His death, in His resurrection, as the means of their salvation. The most elaborate description of who has access to the new Jerusalem is found in verse 6 and 7, chapter 21. God Himself says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. He will be my son. Isn't it amazing that God speaks about those who have access to the new Jerusalem? Not only as those who have their names written in the book of life. That's true. But also with two more descriptions. And I think these two descriptions define what it means also to have your name written in the book of life. The thirsty and the conquerors. In the New Jerusalem, those who experience thirst for God will have their thirst quenched. Those who are in the New Jerusalem are those who who thirst for God. And the promise to to quench the thirst of those who come to Him is a promise that God has given throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. When Jesus came on the earth, he spoke about the language of thirsting. John 7, 37 through 39, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not been glorified. Friends, have you considered that faith in God is not just an intellectual experience? It's not merely that what you think about God as true that counts. Faith in God is not also simply a decision that you make one time. It is definitely not just saying a prayer for salvation. Faith in God, that is a saving faith, faith in God is manifested as a thirsting for God. Friends, if our faith is not changing what we thirst for, what we yearn for ultimately in this life, it is possible that our faith is a false faith. True faith that saves us from our sin is a faith manifested through a new thirst for God and for the life that God alone is able to give. So when God says here in Revelation 21, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, let me ask you, does this characterize you? Does this thirst characterize you? You don't earn, you and I don't earn the access to the spring of the water of life. God says, I will give it without payment. God says that he will give and quench the thirst of our hearts without payment to anyone who thirsts for him. There's a, a new song that we want to teach our congregation. It's entitled Living Waters, and it starts this way. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Time unbroken, peace unspoken. Rest besides these living waters. Christ is calling. Find refreshing at the cross of living waters. Lay your life down on thee. All come. Rise up in these living waters. And the last stanza of the song says, are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Love, forgiveness, vast and boundless. Christ, he is our living waters. Oh, friends, I pray that we understand that God is promising us a life unending through Jesus Christ if we would thirst after that life and after Christ. The final description of those who belong to the New Jerusalem of those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, are not only the thirsty, are not only those who have a thirst for God, but also the conquerors. Look at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Notice who will inherit this new Jerusalem? The one who conquers. We have seen the, the promise of conquering throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus used the promise of conquering to, as a closing statement for every one of the seven letters to the seven churches. The conquerors, who are they? The conquerors are those who endure to the end in not compromising with the beast. The conquerors stand in great contrast with those who are not conquerors. And say, who are they? If in verse 7 we saw, see the conquerors, in verse 8 we see those who are not conquerors. Verse 8 but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. Friends, each of these sins describe the life of those who have followed the beast and have accepted compromise with the beast. Their destiny is a lake of fire. It's amazing when, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he began listing a number of, of lists of sins. And he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, 
But such were some of you. But you have been washed. You have been cleansed. Oh, friends, I want to make sure you understand, those who inherit the new Jerusalem is not those who have been perfect in this life, who have not done any of these things. It is those who, though they may have done any of these things, nevertheless have come to Christ, have repented of their sins, have trusted in Christ for their salvation, have been washed by the blood of Christ, so that the blood of Christ made them clean, so they are no longer characterized by these sins any longer. And all those who, who continue to live in these sins, who live in a way that are, is characterized by these sins, we have no confidence to, to give them that somehow they will be inheriting that new city. Oh, friends, if any of these sins have characterized you up to the present moment, come to Christ. He will cleanse you. He will wash you. He will make you pure. He will give you the right to the new city. If you are a believer, do not take confidence in a decision you have made 20 years ago. Consider your your way of life. Are you continuing to live a life of repentance, a life of forsaking sin? And even when you fall into it, that you, you turn away from it and come to God, that you continue to live a life that is no longer characterized by these sins. Oh, friends, the conquerors are those who persevere in their faith. The conquerors are no, not those who, who have prayed a prayer. The conquerors are those who persevere in their faith. Friends, I pray and ask that you consider to live a life as one who conquers, not by your power, not by your strength, but by the power of God, by the Spirit of God, who makes out of your soul a, a, a place from which living waters flow. Friends, the reason why we encourage people to join a local congregation is to commit to a group of people, a group of Christians who encourage one another to persevere in our faith. If, if you're a Christian and not a member of a local congregation, I want to encourage you to commit to a church, especially those who are students who are coming perhaps for the first time here. I'm not saying that you need to join this particular congregation, but I want to encourage you to join a congregation that preaches the Word of God, that is faithful in Scripture, is faithful with the Gospel, and where Christians commit to one another to encourage one another to persevere in their faith. The local church is one of the means God has given us as, as a way to encourage one another to be persevering so that we might be among the conquerors. This morning we have seen what God is doing in, in giving us a peak of eternity, a, a, a picture of what will happen in eternity. It's not the clouds and the, and the fluffy angels with their harps. It's that God will make a new creation for His city and the city of God is, the, is a symbol of God's dwelling with His people. It's a city filled with the glory of God. But who will inherit that city? Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I wonder if this is what you're thirsting for. I wonder if this thirst manifests in your life. Would you pray with me?